Uh, this show we're going to dedicate to one of the great contributors to the game. If you know uh, curling at all and you've been watching it over the last several years, you will know Ryan Fry, who was the great third for Brad Jacobs' team. And they went on to win the uh, gold medal at the Olympics in 2014. They won the Briar in 2013. They got a silver medal there at the Worlds. And his father, Barry, is who we'd like to devote this show to. Warren, he was a great contributor to the game as well. Yeah, without question. One of the greats uh, of his time. We're going to talk about that and a lot more coming up. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Benny. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right here, Last guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. So here's what's going to happen today in the show. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And uh, we've got the World Mixed Doubles Championship that started. And uh, there's a lot going on. Brad Gushu, of course, is curling with uh, Kerry Anderson. Uh, also, the U.S. Mixed Doubles uh, is going to start this week. And this sounds kind of confusing because they've got a team at the Mixed Doubles right now. But their uh, national championship is, is on in Wausau, Wisconsin. And that's going to be followed uh, later on by the U.S. men's and women's nationals uh, this week. We want to find out all about that. We talked a lot about uh, tiebreakers last week and the different ways of dealing with them. A number of people in our Facebook group feel the only way to settle tiebreakers is with a, with a game. Uh, also, we got a couple of great emails and uh, a lot more. Um, so, Warren, let's talk about uh, Ryan Fry's dad, Barry. Uh, again, we'd like to devote this show to him. He passed away on Friday. Uh, Warren, you knew Barry and and talk about him as one of the great contributors to the game. Yes, Barry Fry was one of the great players from the 70s and 80s and probably, I guess, even going back into the 60s would, would have had him involved uh, to a very large degree as well. And we're very sad to report that Barry passed away last Friday after dealing with uh, a difficult illness for quite some time. So all our condolences go to the Fry family and particularly Ryan. Barry was from my era. I was in Edmonton, he was in Winnipeg, and so in those days, uh, you seldom saw players from Manitoba if you lived in Alberta. You might see them in a bond spiel in Saskatoon or Regina once a year, but unless you went to a national championship, you probably never rubbed elbows. So I had that pleasure of going to the Canadian Mixed Championship on a team from Alberta, and Barry was skipping Manitoba. And interesting enough, we got to play them in the very first game. Uh, We defeated them. But interesting from that point, we went on and lost a couple of games, and Barry went on and won nine straight and took the Canadian Championship. The event was played in Charlottetown, which was a fun place to have it to start with, and a lot of social activities around that event, and Barry and I got to know each other pretty well, and uh, we became friends. Often when we'd see each other at curling competitions, uh, other social things to do with curling, have some interesting chats and some laughs. Uh, Barry was a very good player in Manitoba. He tried to win a Manitoba championship many, many times, but didn't succeed. Back in those days, that wasn't that uncommon. Another couple of great players from that time uh, also um, 
tried for years to win uh, Manitoba, and in the case of Merv Mann, tried to win Saskatchewan, and he never never did, same as Gary Ross in Manitoba. Barry was in that category, but finally in 1979, at a fairly older age, he did win Manitoba and went to the Briar in Ottawa, and he won that Briar, and that was kind of a unique Briar because that was the last McDonald Briar, and it was the last time the Briar was ever played with a round robin. And really interesting, in the old round-robin days, there were 11 teams in the Briar, so in every round, somebody got a bye. And by chance, the last game on Saturday afternoon, which was going on national television with CBC, Barry Fry had the bye, and he was sitting in the stands, and he had already won the Briar without being on the ice. So there was CBC for the whole day, televising Saturday afternoon, and the winner wasn't even playing. It really hit the note home that uh, there had to be a playoff at the end. You just couldn't end it with the round-robin. And so... He was a person that lived that experience. He went on to play the world championship in Bern. And interesting enough, Kevin, he played in that same famous arena that you and I played in. And unfortunately, he had the same result we did. He didn't win. But uh, they lost in the semifinal to Norway. Certainly put up a good show. But uh, again, they didn't, they didn't win that world championship. Uh, Barry went on and continued to play. Uh, I think he played in Manitoba finals again many, many times. Didn't make it back to the Briar. But had he been in any, any other province, probably the Manitoba, he would have been in many Briars. But that's how difficult in those days Manitoba was. He did, however, as he got older, did play in the seniors. He represented Manitoba a couple of times in the seniors. And then with, I believe, Don Duguid and Ray Turnbull, they actually won the Masters around 2001. So he never gave up. He kept playing. And then his son Ryan became of age, and Barry mentored him. And I can remember running into them at the Canadian Juniors probably back in the early 90s. Um, and Barry was there mentoring Ryan along the way. And uh, he did a great job because Ryan has become one of the greatest players of uh, our current era. And so it's uh, sad that we all have to say goodbye to Barry. But again, he was one of the great ones, a Canadian champion and a, and a great player of the game. You know, I think about Barry. He had that tuck delivery. And I was trying to think a couple of days ago. The two players back in the 60s, 70s era that had that tuck delivery were Don Duguid and Barry Fry. And I was wondering to myself, is it Barry Fry who initiated that tuck delivery? That question, I don't know the answer to. But anyway, said that Barry's gone. Also on the show today, Brad Gushu is coming on, and we're going to interview Brad. He's over at the World's Mixed Doubles. At the time of recording here, Brad has snuck out a couple of wins. Uh, he played Spain, and I think he's playing Hungary right now as we do this. So, Kev, we're well underway with the world mixed doubles yeah you mentioned spain and that was a, a sneak all right actually brad and uh, and carrie got down four nothing after two ends and fought their way back stole two in the last end to get that win and then a nine six win over germany and they're currently on the ice uh, against hungary so no surprise that canada jumped out to a good start also uh, jennifer dodds with bruce uh, mowett did as well they are they're out to a good start uh, the czech republic uh, Pulova and Paul got out to a good start at 2-0. and One team that surprised me a bit in Pool A, I thought RCF would come out pretty well too, and that's Anastasia Moskleva and uh, Alexander Ehrman. But they started out 0-2, and, and that's a bit of a surprise to me. Kind of expected RCF to be strong, so we'll see if they can bounce back or not. In Pool B, Kristen uh, Skazlian and uh, Magnus Nedergotten, very, very accomplished uh, mixed doubles. They're at 2-0. Uh, Switzerland, Jenny Perret and uh, uh, Martin Rios. Again, very strong mixed doubles players. They're at one and one. 
Um, of course, Oscar Erickson with uh, Almeida Devel at 2 0. And Tabitha Peterson, fantastic skip from the women's team in the U.S., has teamed up with Joe Polo, who has done well over the years in mixed doubles. They're at 2 0. Uh, one surprise in Pool B that I'm a little bit shocked of Eureka Yoshida and Yuta Masamura from Japan are at 0 and 2. And I really expected them to, uh, to, to start out the week strong. So we'll have to keep an eye on them as well. Uh, because I, I just think that's a very strong team, and they, they should do uh, really well. Once again, this World Mixed Doubles is a six-team playoff, same as the men's and the women's, where the top team in each group get to the semis, and uh, and the next two in each group uh, go back to the, if you want to call it a qualifying uh, game or a quarterfinal to get into the semis. So uh, I, I've been watching it closely. I love the mixed doubles, and uh, it's going to be fun to watch going forward. When you look at the uh, World uh, championships right now for the mixed doubles, Warren. Um, what would hold Canada back after it's been under for a few days, if uh, if anything at all? Because that that was an obvious struggle uh, for them in their first game. Well, mixed doubles is a different game, and it's certainly uh, more wide open, probably four-person curling, in the fact that I don't think anybody is ever safe playing mixed doubles. And, and what's happened at the world level, many of these countries have not had uh, four strong men or four strong women to form a four-person team. But they have been able to come up with at least a one female and one good male player to put together a very competitive mixed doubles team. And so you see countries like Spain and Hungary that we've never really heard of before at the world curling level if you live in Canada. Yet they've been playing in the Europeans for many years. But this mixed doubles has given them an opportunity to begin to expand and excel the sports in their country. And I think this has been another great thing about mixed doubles. It has helped expand curling around the world because it just takes two people. So I think that's another really solid thing. And the fact is, again... Um, I think this team from Spain, going back a few years when this was just starting, uh, they have been in the final before. Hungary, that team that they're playing this morning, they have won it. And I think they've been in the final a couple of times. And this is back in the early going of it. But again, mixed doubles is far more wide open than a four-person curling. And it's at the point that anyone can win. And Brad and Kerry are going to have to uh, be their best to come through this thing uh, and, and finish on top. I think as well from a coverage point of view, TSN is covering a couple of games. Uh, this show will be released Thursday. We'll, they will have done one on Wednesday. But I think a big game I should mention is at 2.30 p.m. Eastern on Thursday afternoon, Canada's going to play Scotland, Bruce Mowat. And that should be a great game. Don't miss it. I know you love it, Kevin, the mixed doubles. Are, are there any rules, Kevin, uh, in mixed doubles that you would like to see in the men and women's four-person game? I, I don't know about that, other than, of course, going to eight ends, um, which is what mixed doubles does. You know, the four-person game definitely needs to go to eight ends. There's no question about that. It just takes way too long to, to play a 10-end game with commercials and five rock rule and all of it. So that's one thing I definitely would like to see uh, changed to uh, to make the the game's the same. But to Warren's point, um, the coverage has been fantastic. Uh, I know TSN's covering a few games, but make sure you can go on YouTube and watch the World Curling Television feed. That's what I did to watch uh, Brad and Kerry play Spain. And uh, it's terrific coverage. Uh, it was excellent to watch. So I just want to make sure everybody knows that because in our Facebook group and, and myself just getting uh, messages from people uh, wondering, how can we watch this? Well, that's how you do it. And now in Canada, if it's on TSN, you watch it on TSN because you won't be able to get the YouTube feed. But um, when TSN's not covering it, you can go on the World Curling Television and get it on YouTube. And it's really easy to do. Uh, you're going to have to explain this to me, Hanson. So the World Mixed Doubles is on right now. USA has a team in there. And 
the U.S. Mixed Doubles National Championship is going to start this weekend in Wisconsin, followed by the U.S. Men's and Women's Nationals. Give us an update there, Warren, and why are the U.S. Nationals being held after the World Championships, and why is this taking place right now? I mean, it must be some sort of deal with COVID, but that doesn't make sense to me, Warren, how, how, that this team who's curling is not in their national championship right now. What's, what's going on with the timing of all that? Well, yes, I guess it does seem a little strange, the fact that the U.S. teams in the World Championships this year were the 2020 champions, and now they're playing the 2021 uh, championship. The main function of this uh, event, both of them, is Olympic qualification. And I'll just run through sort of the situation. And, of course, with Olympic qualification, some teams have already qualified, Tabitha Peterson being one of them, in both the mixed doubles and the women's championships. So she's not necessary for her to play in it. And other teams like John Schuster isn't playing in the year because he's already qualified. But uh, let's just take a look. So their mixed doubles uh, is going to go next weekend. And it's the Olympic trials that this is all aiming at. And just to give you a little review of what their trials will look like. Uh, their mixed uh, doubles trials are going to be held in Irving, California in December. Uh, it's going to be a 10-team event. Three teams have already qualified for the trials. Tabitha Peterson and Joe Pola, who are in Aberdeen. Corey Christensen, John Schuster, and Sarah Anderson and Corey Dropkin have already qualified. The top four teams from this U.S. national that's being played this coming weekend will also qualify for Irvine, and three more teams will qualify in a trials qualifying event to be set for September of 2021. When this is over, they'll start the men's and women's championship, and that will be taking place, I think, starting on the 25th. Uh, same situation is the trials for both the men and women will be held in Omaha, Nebraska in November. Each situation will be six teams. The 2020 U.S. National Champions have already qualified, and that, of course, is Tabitha Peterson and John Schuster. The two highest-ranked teams in the 2021 National Championships in both the men's and women's, of course, that's the events being played next week, will qualify for Omaha. And three men's and three women's teams will qualify for the trials via a qualifying series of events to be held in the fall of 2021. Kevin might have some comments. Some of the teams, I think, that have a really good chance of qualifying out of these events I think uh, on the women's side, Corey Christensen and Jamie Sinclair are the two teams to watch. They actually were playing together a year ago, but uh, Christensen actually formed her own team along with the other two members of, of the Sinclair team from last year. And Monica Walker, who used to play with Sinclair, is back with her. And uh, on the men's side, I think Rich Ron and Corey Dropkin are probably the two best chances to come out of that side of things. Kev? Yeah, you know, I had a uh, got a hold of Matt Hamilton because I, I want to find out from because he yes, the men's team uh, Schuster with uh, Plies Landsteiner and uh, and Hamilton they're they're into the trials in men's, but uh, John Schuster of course is in uh, the mixed doubles trials already, but Matt isn't with his sister Becca, and so I, I just got a hold of Matt and uh, he just said that after Becca was in the bubble for that long to come home for a little bit and then back in a bubble again just did not want to do that. So they're going to take their chances and try to get through. Uh, there's two fall qualifiers for the mixed doubles, and uh, they're hoping to sneak in through one of those. And then uh, Chris Plies, he just backed up at work. He just has to get he has to get some work done. Uh, being in the bubble as long as they were, uh, you can't take time off forever. And uh, so John Schuster actually talked to him yesterday. Uh, he was ready to play in both. He didn't mind, come on, let's keep curling, but uh, uh, you can't curl by yourself. <laughs> 
so he's at home and uh but they'll do just fine but uh, matt and becca of course everybody enjoys watching uh watching them play and uh so they'll be trying to get in, into the mixed doubles uh in the fall in uh, in the u.s so that's uh that's the scoop on because they're they're the best known team obviously in in well could be in the world of curling but certainly in the u.s so warren clear up for us that certainly when we talk about qualifying for the olympics you know uh, carrie anderson for example uh did she qualify for the Olympics? Does she get to go to the trials? I know Canada does, and I'm assuming it's her team. Yes, she's already qualified for the trials to be held in November in Saskatoon is the schedule for it. Uh, I was just checking last night, and I think there's four women's teams have already qualified. And the balance of those teams will come from, normally would come from points that are going to be accumulated uh, over this last year and, and through the uh, the coming year. But I'm not totally sure at this point in time exactly how the balance of those teams are going to be determined, but the trials will be held in uh, in November in Saskatoon, and there will be a free trials event as well, which has been scheduled to happen, but uh, same thing, no site has been determined for that yet either. What, why a pre-trials one? Well, this goes back to 2010 when this idea was started, and it was started because of the Olympics being in Canada that um, a number of teams should be given the opportunity to try to get into the trials. And so the first pre-trials event was held in Prince George up in uh, November, I believe, of 2009, just before the trials. And what happened, uh, basically, the eight teams get in through the points and, and various things that they have done uh, over the four-year period. And then there was these two spots left open for another group that are just behind those to be able to play off to get into the event. So that will be happening again, too, if, in fact, the whole COVID situation allows this all to take place as planned. And, of course, at this stage of the game, who knows? Kev, how did you get into the Olympic trials when you uh, and you went on to win in 2010? What what was it back then, 11 years ago? Yeah, I don't remember how many teams it was. I think it was 10, but I could be wrong. We had won the uh, 08 Briar and the 09 Briar back to back, so that got us into maybe the Canada Cup too. But uh, there are different ways of getting in. But they had the uh, the pre trials at that point. Um, it just opens up the door to more and more teams. Now, of course, that's a discussion that we got to have with. Uh, is that even appropriate? Um, it's hard to say. The pre-trials did have Brad Jacobs come out of it in 2013 when uh, they went to the uh, Olympics and won the gold medal. So uh, there's arguments both ways. You know, do you want to open it up outside the top X amount of teams, six or eight, um, and take a chance that somebody could get hot one week and just not be as good of a team on, on a regular basis, as consistent? But of course, you know, uh, Brad Jacobs did fantastic in 2013 coming out of that pre-trials event. So it'll be interesting. We'll have to have those discussions when we get closer to the uh, the pre-trials itself this fall, uh, when uh, hopefully it all happens <laughs> the way everybody's hoping it will. Um, but then you know, we'll have that discussion about uh, how the trials should set up. Is it Should we narrow the field to maybe six or eight men's and women's teams and not have it open to, to every every team because it's just to go off rankings the most consistent teams are probably the ones we want to have at the olympics uh, representing us but you know we'll have that discussion with uh, we'll bring in some of the top curlers and and we'll see what they say god one of the biggest events ever warren i remember uh when i was working for you there in the patch it was either in saskatchewan or alberta that the olympic trials was both men's and women's at the same time what a, what a huge 10 days that was that was cool warren that was Edmonton in 2009, Jim, and that was a, a fabulous event. And of course, Kevin came out of there as the winner, so he was in his hometown, so that just added to the whole thing. So, yes, it was a great event. 
Jimmy, do you remember that? It was minus 56 with wind chill. It was colder than Siberia uh, during the finals on the Sunday. And uh, anybody, it was 14,000 people in the building. They know that if they leave their car parked without being plugged in, for everybody listening to this around the world, we actually have to plug our cars in in the wintertime or else they can't start because they completely freeze up. And that's what happens. All all these tons of cars after the curling game was done were frozen solid. They couldn't start them. And, oh, man, I remember that. It was cold. Oh, it was so cold. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story about that. A friend of mine, actually a friend, a couple of friends of mine, when they go went, went to the Euler games back in those days too, they just left their car running, Kevin, for the whole game. They would lock it up and just leave the thing running. I remember I was going over to the arena uh, during that event, and you're right, Kevin, it was the coldest place on earth, in, you know, with the windshield way colder than like minus 40, got into the minus 50s, and I whistled out of the briar patch doors, and there's a guy there with no coat on, who had decided to go over and watch the curling, and he was looking back, okay, should he go back to the agricom and looking forward, or should I go to the, into the Coliseum? And I stopped, and I said, hey, do you need some help? And he looked up at me and said, I wish I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cold. Good God. Uh, a couple of emails, like we said, go ahead and uh, email us and... Uh, We'd, we'd love to read it on there, but keep it short. Kevin Warren and Jim, I can't tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I listen to it every week, and I love the interviews and commentaries. Of all the things I miss during COVID, curling is at the top of the list. I usually play at the Royal Canadian Curling Club here in Toronto twice a week and play at least two bonspiels a month and practice weekly on top of that. Having your podcast and being able to watch curling on TV has been a real blessing, and I'm so thankful to be able to have something to listen to and watch. But what has been particularly helpful has been our multiple outdoor viewing events during the Scotties, Briars, Worlds, and Slams. You see, I turned my backyard into my own patch and set up a fire pit and a 120-inch screen television with HD projector to watch curling in a physically distanced way with a group of my curling buddies. Everyone bundles up, brings their own pops, and we spend the last few, we've spent the last few months like crazy Canadians watching curling outdoors in the cold. I thought I'd send you a couple of pictures along in case you'd be interested to see uh, how we've coped with COVID and how much curling helped us to get through all this. Thanks for the podcast and helping us stay connected to the sport we all love. Um, I put up a picture on my social media, uh, so I'll, I'll do it again. Uh, Warren, you saw the picture. This was hilarious, hilarious, these guys in their backyard. I, I think it's uh, opened up a whole new comms concept. I hope Curling Canada has, has paid attention to this because rather than have to pay for these very expensive buildings to operate the briar patch in for a period of uh, sometimes 10 days, you can just have the patch in the parking lot. I think <laughs> you don't even need a tent. Just move a bunch of televisions out in the parking lot and some tables and some chairs and uh, away we go. It might have been a little rough in Edmonton back in 2009, but... Uh, We've had the wrong concept all these years. Uh, absolutely. You know, every other sport, particularly football, has tailgating. Why can't we do it in curling now? Anyway, Scott, that's hilarious. And uh, um, w way to go, you guys. That's, that's, a, that's a great story. And I'd, I'd love hearing that, uh, one of, you know, for a positive thing during COVID. Um, we got another email here that I think is great. And I love the concept of what they're talking about here. And this is from Thomas Lips, who is the men's national coach in Switzerland. 
Uh, he says, hi, everyone. I'd like to share my thoughts about draw to the button, having hammer in the first end and your opinion about it. When I look at both worlds in 2021, there was 194 games were played with 125 wins for those who had the hammer in the first end, 64%. 69 lost who did not have the hammer in the first end or 36%. I think these figures are going up even more when the games are reduced to eight ends. So my suggestion is playing the draw to the button after practicing the same way it is currently taking place. But the winner has the right to decide if they want to have hammer in the first end or hammer after five ends. So at the start of the sixth end, it should not matter what happened in the end before the break. I would imagine the 64 to 36% ratio will get much closer and even closer when there's no extra end. Also suggesting that ties not be broken, but to give a win, a winner gets three points, a tie gets two points, and you get zero for a loss. So what do you think of those ideas? Uh, let's, let's go with you uh, first, Warren. Well, I think the concept of hammer in either the first or if it's a 10 in game, sixth end is a Concept that's been thrown around a few times and, and discussed, thought about. I, I think it might have some merit. It's something I think that probably should be experimented with and see what happens because it does seem as time goes on here again, we're back to the point of whoever wins that toss in the first end or if it's draw the button or whatever the case it may be, it's extremely important to the outcome of that game. And maybe it's too important. And maybe from that point of view, as he's suggesting, the way we even get out is you have a choice. You can have it at the start of the first end or the start of the sixth end in the 10 end game, but not both. Uh, maybe that is the, the answer to some of the problems we've, uh, we, we are encountering today with scoring. The other suggestion is interesting as well because it's one I have thought for a long time. Again, getting back into the games and the big buildings and also television. When you're running around Robin for, in many cases, seven, eight days like Curling Canada currently is, Extra ends can really create a lot of havoc as far as the schedule is concerned, as far as ice preparation and extra coming in, and, and the fans. If you're between four and six or five and seven is your is your time, and all of a sudden that's been cut down by 15, 20 minutes, uh, even if you're going to get somebody to eat, it's a problem. So I think also as well, if you awarded three points for a win and two for a tie, this could also eliminate a lot of the issues with tiebreakers when you get at the end of the round robin as well. So in both cases, I think they're ideas that have merit, uh, should be thought about and, and maybe experimented with a little bit. What about you, Kevin? What do you think? So I got a hold of Jerry Gertz, um, who's a stats guy when we do our Sportsnet broadcast. He also uh, owns and operates Curling Zone. So we look back at the Grand Slams, and that's eight end games. To Thomas's point, is it going to be uh, higher with an eight end game? Well, it's been proven, actually, that's not the case. But we went back to 2012, every uh, slam game in uh, 10 years. It turns out that's hundreds and hundreds of games. So a really good cross-section of curling. Uh, in the men's game, it's 64%, same as what the world's was. 64% of the time you get the hammer, you win in the men's game. In the women's game, it's 58%. Over 10 years, eight end games in the Grand Slams. So um, in the women's game, 58%, that's not really that uh, hard to believe. 64 is higher than I thought it would be. So there, that is something that could be looked at if, uh, you know, you, you throw the draw the button or whatever way you want to decide the, uh, the choice. You could choose to get hammer in the first or you take hammer in the fifth. Interesting. There's some strategy involved. 
some teams are stronger in the first few ends. Some are stronger at the end of the game. So that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, but if you're talking about tiebreaker scenarios, and we've talked to lots of the top curlers about this, should there be tiebreaker games? Do you want to not go to the Olympic Games because of a draw to the button? Like that's in my mind, that, that was not fair this year at the Worlds. Um, but if you go three for a win, two for a tie, don't uh, play extra ends in the round robin. I agree with Warren that because of the amount of points uh, being garnered around the round robin, all of a sudden you're not going to get nearly as many ties at the end of the round robin, and therefore teams aren't getting kicked out because of the draw to the button as much. So, Kevin, if you had to pick, you know, it would be after five ends in a 10-end game, and it would be after, I guess, a fourth end in an eight-end game. you got to pick. you want that hammer, Kevin, in, at the sixth, or do you want it at the first? Yeah, you know, even when we're commentating, we actually say at halftime now. We actually say that on air, like, oh, and uh, it's the score is three to two for whoever at the half. Well, if we're going to start looking at the game in two halves, well, would you like the hammer in the first half or the second half? You know, as sports evolve, things tend to evolve naturally, just in the way we look at the sport. And so, you know, people are starting to look at the sport as in two halves. Okay, cool. If that's the case, well, we could maybe have hammer in the first and, and uh, in the first half and the second half. Warren, does that make any sense, or is, are we just going too far? Well, I think it does, and again, it comes back to the whole thing we've talked about a lot in the last year, and and that's the ability to score. And when you're starting right now, it can say 64% of the times, if you've got last rock in the first hand, you're going to win the game. I, I think that's weighted way too heavy. Yeah. That's only in men's curling, though, right? Only in men's, but even 58, it's still a, it's still a, an advantage. And I, I think from that point of view, it needs to be looked at. Because anytime, if you're looking at a game between any two groups uh, of people, when you can sit down before the game starts and say, after the first end starts, ah, that team's got a 64% chance of winning. I think that's too much. And so maybe, again, along with a whole pile of other things, it's something to look at, experiment with, and, and to think about going forward. Again, this game, as it changes, continually evolves. And I know lots of people don't want it to change and don't want it to evolve, but that's life. That's the way things work. Nothing stays the same. And I think the people that stay ahead of the curve are the ones that adjust when things start to change. They look forward and say, okay, maybe this is a way we can improve this. The same thing with the idea of three points for a win. Just as we're talking here, I'm thinking, hmm, this could be interesting if this was the case as to how people play that 10th end if you're one up without the hammer, which now you may be trying to jockey to just make sure you don't give up more than one. But if that was the case, you'd probably be playing that last end pretty aggressively to make sure you don't lose it. The start of the end, as I watch many times, it's, it's kind of business as usual. Once you get down towards the latter part of the end, if things haven't worked out for the team that's down one with the hammer, the other guys start to tri- play very much the fact of make sure we don't g- give up more than one, so we're going to go into the extra end. If this was the case, they wouldn't be playing it that way for sure. Yeah, well, Warren, can you imagine in, at the end of a round robin? So you got a big round robin, you're playing, 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 and uh, some team is at, tw- because you get three points for a win, so say at the end of the, somebody's at 24 points, another team at 23, 21. Well, that 21, they have to win. They have to win. They can't, they can't tie. There's no extra end. You have to win the game. If you're at 23, even a tie moves you to 25. You move ahead of the 24. Like it, it, it just adds another whole bunch of scenario possibilities at the last round robin game or two. It would really ramp things up. Whereas a lot of times in the round robins at the Worlds, was it in the women's Worlds, everything was decided and there's still one more game to go. 
Like it was like Barry Fry sitting in the audience and he'd already won the briar. It was like that. The, 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 the final six was set. And then there's still one more game to go. But this idea of having three for a win, two for a tie, that, that's really cool. Warren, you straightened me out last night when we were talking about the tiebreaker thing. And I said, Warren, th- 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 that seems like a very sort of unfair way to determine championships. And you said, well, the problem is it can backfire on you, Jim, when you slot in for television a day of tiebreakers or an afternoon uh, and you don't have any, Warren. Uh, that's a big problem, right, for a broadcast. Well, it's a big problem for the broadcast, but it's also a big problem for the building because you now have maybe had an event that's created some momentum. And I always remember in the past uh, an event that really brought that to my attention was the 1994 Brian Red Deer back in the days of a three-team round robin. So there's virtually most of Friday was allocated for tiebreakers. So we end Thursday night, there's no tiebreakers. Friday morning, Friday afternoon were slated. And so all of a sudden, this event that had momentum, and particularly when you look in a three-team playoff, you take the first-place team who's been on top of the attention all week, steps off the ice Thursday night, and you're not going to see them again until Sunday afternoon, plus all day Friday until Friday night there's going to be nothing. The whole momentum of the event stops cold. And uh, you've got people, what do I do now? Um, you, you know, you go for back the old days, you could open up the patch, which we have done that at times when there was no tiebreakers. Not very many people show up. So it, I think it creates a, a lot of issues from many aspects. And unless you're running a, a local bond spiel or a provincial playoff or something where these other factors don't become a consideration, um, tiebreaker slot, t- slot of times create issues. Uh, fellas, I hear footsteps coming down the hallway. And shortly will be a knock-knock at the door with our guest next. Last Rock opening end in a very cluttered house for Brad Gushu. And it does it for wow. two. Got two, <laughs> for sure. Oh, nice to get the game shot out of the way early. Huh? <laughs> for sure. I can't point, Rob. If he'd missed it, it would have been Bruce Mullins' last one. What a great shot this is. Well, the Inside Curling podcast strikes again with good karma. Uh, our guest, this is how good he is. He won at the club level. He won the provincial level. He's won at the national level. He's won at the world level. He's an Olympic champion. And now he's vying for the world mixed doubles. And I'm talking about Brad Gushu. How are you, Brad? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We were uh, just talking a little bit before you came on. I heard you talking with Warren and Kevin. You had a tough one. By the way, Brad, you're tied for first, okay, at the World Mixed Doubles, so look at it that way. Uh, down 4 nothing early, and uh, I heard you say, well, sorry I'm a couple minutes late, fellas, but we had to have a debrief. <laughs> it caught you off guard a little bit, Brad, that first game. You know, it certainly did. I, I think we obviously missed some shots. There's all, uh, no excuse for that, but uh, they played really good in the first couple ends, and getting down four with – a mixed doubles game. It's the games are so fast that it's tough to come back. So we were pretty lucky to, to be able to pull it out, but we did play much, much better in the last six ends and quite happy with the win at the end of the day, a win's a win. So it doesn't matter how you get it. And that's kind of the attitude we're trying to take right now. Right. Take us inside uh, your world right now over there in uh, Scotland. 
what's your setup, Brad? Hotel? How much isolation do you have to do, and all that jazz for the week? Yes, we arrived over here, I believe, on Tuesday morning. Uh, we were stuck in our hotels until about Friday afternoon. We weren't able to do anything. Well, I shouldn't say that. They had allowed us to go out for a walk for 25 minutes here and there. Uh, it was kind of like a one of those prison passes. And uh, <laughs> once <laughs> once Friday came, we were able to, able to get together as a team and, and actually meet and discuss some things. And we practice on Saturday, practice on Sunday practice again this morning and uh, play tonight. So it's been good. The rooms are, I would say, big by European standards. So that's nice. And yeah, we're, we're just happy to be playing right now. It's been a, a long stretch before, uh, you know, you're allowed to go play a game. Talk about the biggest challenges for you. I, I mean, I guess away from the curling when you're doing mixed doubles, Brad, uh, you've, uh, you know, you've curled your whole life. You're over there now vying for the title. I would think one of the biggest challenges first, Brad, is the warm beer to get over that in Scotland. <laughs> well, they usually give you an option. That's that's a good thing. In most places we've been, you can get a warm Guinness or a cold Guinness. So I'm always going for the cold one. But <laughs> no, it's uh, the biggest challenge really for us is is just learning a, dif- a different game. Like uh, Carrie's only played, this is our second mixed doubles event. I'm not you know hugely experienced with it. So it's just getting in there and getting used to how quick it is and, and you can't really build an end like you can in normal curling. So, you know, you have to make sure you're in good position right from the start. And that first rock is crucial. And the second rock is, you know, just as important. So uh, that's the big adjustment really. we well, talk about the debrief then before we bring on Kevin and Warren, talk about what, what you need to do different, I guess, for your next game. Really, Carrie and I have only played one event together. We played 12 games and, and we had a lot of success. We obviously went in the nationals and, and we were playing well, but you know, we really don't kind of know each other all that well uh, in a curling environment. So when, when someone's struggling, what do they want to hear? What do they need in the situation that we're in right now? The ice is dramatically different from when you start practice to when the, the game happens. So we had first practice today and then all of a sudden on, on Kerry's first rock, you're kind of guessing on at what the speed is. So that's something we didn't have to deal with in Calgary. And again, when you have a team that's played together for years, you know exactly what you need to do. But Kerry and I haven't been through that. So um, just trying to figure things like that out and, and we're doing it on the fly and Again, we're pretty skilled. We're pretty easy to get along with. And, and you know, we can talk it out and, and come up with a strategy. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. Well, yeah, Brad, I watched the game today and congratulations on the win. Thank you. But I would like to talk to you a little bit about the ice because uh, I was watching and it, it seemed to get frostier and frostier. But I, so then I went right to my computer and, and it's raining in Aberdeen today, or at least it said it on the, the weather <laughs> update. Um, yeah. So it must be a little bit humid there. Is that, do you think, what's what's causing the, fr- or is there frost? Like, it looks like quite a little bit when you go wide. Yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. I think really the big adjustment for us, we we practiced first on Saturday, and, and fortunately they gave us an hour and a half on Saturday, an hour and a half on Sunday, and then 45 minutes this morning, which is tons of practice and, and way more than you normally get before a big championship. But the real issue was on, on Saturday we showed up and we threw the first draw, and I came up 15 feet short of the hog line. And realized that draw weight was about 11 and a half seconds. And, uh, you know, by the end of the practice, it got up to around 13.5, which is still slow by, you know, major championship status. And then we show up on Sunday and then it goes the other way where we threw a 16.2 to the T-line, which for anybody that curls, that's, that's lightning fast. 
And then today or last night they paper the rocks and today was somewhere in between. So really for us, it's, uh, you know, we haven't found that comfort zone yet and, and that will come. And, you know, the ice makers are in a, a bit of a tough situation because like most of these major championships, they got to, you know, put it together pretty quick and they're doing it in May <laughs> in a pretty human environment. And, uh, they just um, didn't have it quite where they wanted it, I guess, on Saturday. But certainly by Sunday, they realized it was in good position. And then they would just paper the rocks to take a bit of the speed and, and add a little bit more curl to the ice. So the ice was good today. There's really no excuse. Well, sure. You know, that's and that's the way it is with uh, with major championships. The first game or even two games yeah. can be a little exciting. and then, But that was no different in Calgary, too, at the start of the various bubble events. The ice makers would put the ice in and then they've got to sort of figure out, okay, with these rocks and this situation and this and and uh, so that's that's no problem. But I was just watching; and it was in the seventh end when uh, yeah. you had a fairly well. You'd think a fairly simple intern hit through the hole to for you guys to get three, but you actually said, "Well, we could draw for two. <laughs> this is like <laughs> because how uh, they're a female thrower. That intern spot really went like it curled like crazy there." And you're thinking, wow, how much ice do you have to take on this intern hit versus the outturn? It looked like it stayed quite straight. So a bit dished wide? No, I, I would say it's pretty pretty level, to be honest. I, I think the, the ice surface is good. The only issue is when you haven't played a spot in a couple ends, there's a, you know, I guess maybe to the frost point, uh, there's a, you know, a little bit there that the rock can grab it and get a bit more curl. And in hindsight, I think later on in the week, we may play that shot again because we know where to put the broom and, and we can expect what's going to happen. We were guessing a little bit there and, and obviously we guessed wrong and, and uh, you know, it would have been a lot smarter play again in hindsight to, to draw for two and take it and, and also take a chance at the measure. But, you know, that shot, looking at it and looking at it from a normal curling perspective, like you feel Kerry makes that 95% of the time. Sure. It's just, um, again, where we were uncertain in that spot and there, there are some spots that jumps, uh, we just got caught. Isn't that funny? Hey, Kerry's one of the best hitters in the world ever. <laughs> and you, yeah. and, and you go, gee, you know, maybe we should draw. And the thing is you had all the momentum right then, you know, like yeah. you're coming back, you're down for nothing. And I think, what was it? You grabbed a deuce. Yeah. Then you grabbed three more and five. And then you had a chance for three and seven. So I, I agree with it. How do you not take the shot at three? But but you you kind of own the game at that point. Yeah, and you're thinking there, you know, if we make the nose hit, we're guaranteed a three, we're up to, you know, we win that 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, we, we draw for two. It's still a little bit of a toss-up. Maybe, yeah, we probably win 60% of the time or 70%, or but... I'd rather be 99.9%. .9%, so, you know, that's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's real hard to not take on that shot for three, but again, hindsight, I was a little uncertain of the ice and so was Carrie. Um, you know, neither one of us were real confident in the spot and first game. Yeah. We probably should have drawn for two, but it's, you know, it takes a pretty courageous play to, to do that. And <laughs> we, we didn't have the courage. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Brad. So again, congratulations on your win so far. Let's talk a little bit about this event because this is a little different than has been happening at the world level with mixed doubles in addition to COVID. And in fact, I think the last mixed doubles worlds, there was 40 countries in it. This year we have 20. Yeah. Looks like they're going to go with 20 from here on in in two sections of 10. And if we all understand it correctly, this is going to qualify slimmer to the men's and women's worlds, I do believe. The winner of each uh, section is going to get a bye to the semifinals, and then the next top four teams will go into the quarterfinals. Is that the, the way it's going to be structured? 
Yeah, that's correct. And, and all, all six teams that make the playoffs are going to advance into Beijing. And then the seventh place team uh, or the seventh and eighth or fourth in both pool could have a playoff. Now there's a whole bunch of scenarios where if China and England are in the playoffs, you know, it can mix and match because China has a direct berth into Beijing and UK basically is represented, going to be represented by Scotland. So uh, England really can't qualify uh, in addition. So there's a lot of different scenarios. They went through it last night in the team meeting and, and I kind of dozed off because uh, there were so many of them. Uh, so I'm, I just I hope Scott paid attention. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of scenarios. But for us, number one, we got to make the playoffs to make sure Canada's in the Olympics. And then after that, you know, hopefully we can get on a run on the weekend and, and finish it off. So there are going to be seven countries coming out of, their, out of there one way or the other. Is that what I understand? Yeah, absolutely. So there's eight teams going to be at the Olympics and China is going to be one of those teams because they're, they're the host. Uh, so the other seven teams are going to come from here. Yeah, I think that's how I understood it. So hopefully I explained that right for you guys. Well, <laughs> let's clarify that because uh, I, I read something, I think, that said that the Olympics this time is going to be 10 teams. Is, is that correct or is it going to be eight? I just know for us, the goal is get to the playoffs. And if we're in that top six, you know, we're, we're going to make sure Canada's there. Um, that's the main goal for us. Anything beyond that, we're not too worried about because uh, I don't want to be fighting for seventh place or eighth place. We want to be we want to be playing on the weekend and give ourselves a chance to win. So, who do you think your toughest competition is? I see that uh, Bruce Mowitz in your section, so I'm sure he's going to be right up there. Anybody else in that group that you are, are aware of that are really really good? I'm not familiar with all the teams just because I, I haven't played a whole lot of mixed doubles, but. There's a lot of really good teams. I found out Hungary has won, you know, this world championship twice in the past. So I, I wasn't even aware of that, but there's a lot of good players. Oscar uh, Erickson's over here playing, you know, Joe Pola and Tabitha from, from the U S are a real good team. Uh, the Norwegian team is, is the same team that lost the Olympic final. Uh, so there's, there's a ton of really good teams. I think, um, you know, you play this event 10 times, you're going to see a lot of different teams in the playoffs, but you're also going to see a couple teams there that are, are consistently going to be in it. So it is a good field. I think a lot of countries sent their, their best teams because they want to solidify that Olympic berth and uh, made it a little tougher on us. That's for sure. Do you guys look at, uh, at the stats of the player before you play? Like your next game is against Italy. Yeah. Stephanie, Stefania. Constantini, she she's very consistent with her in-turn or out-turn hits and and uh, and draws. She was 68, 69, 69, 70, depending on in-turn hit, out-turn hit, in-turn draw, out-turn draw. Amos, on the other hand, Masaner, is um, 76% on out-turn draws, whereas he's around 90% on any kind of hits. Uh, that's a big difference. He's an incredible hitter. Uh, we played him a, a bunch of times over the years, and he is one of the best hitters in, in the world, to be quite honest. He can throw it so hard and so straight. So I'm not surprised by that. I would say, uh, you know, he is an incredible hitter. And the luxury, though, that we have in mixed doubles is you don't play hits nearly as much. Um, and if you do play hits, it's you're playing long run back. So, you know, if we can get our rocks in position earlier, he's playing run back doubles or double run backs. So that's just a matter of us in the first couple of rocks getting things in position, but really to answer your question, typically at a briar or a slam, yeah, I, I look at the stats to see if anybody's struggling with a turn or, or a hit or draws. Sometimes if you got a choice, you can leave them one or the other. Uh, what we found from the mixed doubles nationals is when you try and get someone to play a turn, it's, it's really challenge, really a challenge because 
you know, we would force a team to play or we would play our intern hoping the other team would play the intern, but the ice curls so much that they could play the outturn anyway. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to force someone into, uh, you know, a shot where they're, they're weak at. That makes sense. Cause there is so much, and there is a ton of curl in this building. Even here, it's very similar to what we had in Calgary. We're, we're looking at five and a half, six feet right now. And I'm sure that will, that'll come down, but you know, they, they can still knit more. So I think we're, we'll probably be looking at five feet for most of the week. So Brad, the rules of mixed doubles allows the person throwing first and fifth to be switched with the person throwing two, three, four. Yeah. And, and so far I've noticed, I don't think you and Carrie have ever switched up at all. Have you? No. Do you ever, con no. do you ever consider that? And, and why, and why don't you? We haven't considered it and we probably won't. And the reason is I want her sweeping three instead of me sweeping three. And that's just uh, laziness more than anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh, to, to be to be quite honest, um, you know, we were just talking about this with with Scott and, and Heather. And, and my belief with mixed doubles is we, we need to go to six rocks and we need to have equal representation where the women are throwing three, the men are throwing three, men are sweeping three, women are sweeping three. You know, I don't love this situation. There's a lot of men's or a lot of teams where the men are sweeping all five and they're throwing three. And, and to me, that that's not what this game is all about. So, you know, when Carrie and I joined forces, we, you know, I said, you're, you're going to have to sweep and I'm going to sweep as well. And, and we're trying to do it as a team. And, and uh, hopefully this will start a conversation in, in the world of curling that we can get it a little bit more even. That's just my view of it. You know, I see some teams that are, are very male dominant and I'm like, that's not really the intention of this. I don't think so. Don't want to be setting that example. And she's probably a better sweeper than I am anyway. So uh, <laughs> it may, makes it a lot easier for our team to make that decision. So you think it should be six rocks? I do. Um, you know, my idea is, is uh, you know, the first end, the man, the men or the woman throws one, three, five, and the other throws two, four, six. And then the next thing you switch it around. Right. So you always have, you know, four ends where you're throwing the last rock, four ends where the, the female is throwing the last rock. And it really makes things even, makes things fair. And I also think the six rock is going to create a lot more interest in these ends. Um, you know, it gives you a chance, one more rock where you can build an end and, and maybe, uh, you know, you see, you know, a few more runbacks at the end where you can mess some rocks around and get a bigger end. Uh, I just think that one rock can create a lot more interest. Very well may be. When we invented the thing, the, the thought was that uh, by having the one, five, two, three, four, that it would be switched on a regular basis depending upon circumstance. But I, I don't think yeah. uh, I've noticed anyone to this point really seems to do that. So you may be right. Yeah. And I think early on it did switch, you know, the first event that I played, um, you know, Val and I played together and, and we switched multiple times, but it just seems to be the standard now where the men are thrown in the middle and, you know, and, and the, the women are thrown the, the first and the last. And, and that's why I think it, it does need to, to be adjusted because, uh, it, sh it shouldn't be that way because it does aesthetically for someone that's not a curling fan or doesn't know the origin of the game or the fact that we do have the opportunity to switch, you know, may look at it from a different lens and say, this is a little bit, uh, male dominated. So interesting. I just watched your whole last game. Man, it was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Like it's, it was a real battle for you guys to come back and you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I just love McDoubles and it. it was so much fun to watch and, and that seems to be consistent all the time. And you're never out of the game ever. Like you guys, you know, down for nothing. You'd think you're toast, but no, not, not, not at all. Yeah, it it is a fun game to watch, and and I I've become more of a fan of it over the years, just because 
you know, the, the four person game at times you can get these ends where there's nothing happening or, or nobody really wants to take any, uh, you know, any chances and in mixed doubles, you don't have that option. Like we would have loved in the first end today to, to get familiar with the ice and go up and down the sheet, but you can't do that because you've got a center guard and you got one back four and you're not allowed to hit anything. So <laughs> you have no choice, but to, you know, muck it up in the first end and it makes it tough and it makes it exciting. And from the fans perspective, you're always going to see some sort of, uh, you know, interesting ends. Brad, you talked about um, not being familiar with the game. Uh, you and Kerry have only been together for a little bit. What do you do strategy-wise, Brad? Are you leaning on any, anyone? Do you have a coach? Are you are phoning someone uh, or other people to help you through this? We've watched some videos. Uh, both of us have watched, you know, independently watched some games. Uh, but we're, we're relying pretty heavily on Scott. Uh, Scott's the national team coach for mixed doubles. He's been to this championship before. Probably watched more mixed doubles curling than anybody. And Scott's a, a guy that I have a lot of respect for, even in the, you know, the four person game, they had incredible run with, uh, the fur before. So in between ends today, you know, we, we had a lot of chats about things that we did and, and if we could have done something different and even, you know, when to use the power play and when, when not to. And, and, um, that's something that he's much more familiar with than I am. And there's times when I think, okay, this is probably a good chance to use it. And he'll say, no, this is, this is the reason why. And, and, you know, there's always logic behind it. So we're, we're relying on him pretty heavily. And, and, uh, you know, even after our games at the nationals, we talked to Jeff Stout and, and, uh, and Scott and bounce some things. If we weren't sure if we made the right decision, we run it by them and, and get confirmation or, or have them tell us that, uh, nope, we messed up there. So right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're not afraid to ask for advice. Uh, like I said, we just don't have the experience playing. So if you can rely on someone that knows better and knows more than you, why not do it? Is there anything from the mixed doubles game they could borrow to put in the four-man curling, the regular curling that you like or don't like? Yeah, I, I, I do like the fact that, you know, on the first stand, you got to go for it. And, you know, you can't, you don't have the option of feeling out the ice or just going up and down the sheet and breaking in the ice. Like you're forced into it. I, I like that. I think there's eight ends there for a reason. And, you know, there's a lot of teams and, and we've done it in the past and, uh, that take a 10 end game and shorten it to, you know, seven, eight, nine ends. And, and some teams shorten it to five or six ends. I don't love that. I, I think that's something that I'd love to see go away. And I know there's talks about, you know, the blanks, you lose the hammer and, and different mm -hmm. things like that. I'm not sure what the solution is, but in mixed doubles, that's not an option. And I think that's a, a great asset to the game and it makes for entertaining ends each and every end you play. So is Brad Gushu sold on mixed doubles now? Are you going to continue pursuing this game? Are you going to try for the Olympics? What's, what's the future? Well, well unfortunately, uh, age is not my friend right now. Um, we have a teammate over here that uh, nobody knows about. Called, her name is Jenny, and she's a physio chiro massage. Uh, so for me... For me to do this uh, long term, um, she's going to have to become a permanent teammate. Or, you know, it's it's physically it's physically hard on the body. To be honest, um, you know, it's something that as as a skip, I don't have to deal with as much. And you know, it's why you're not seeing many forty plus year olds playing front end in, in the four person game because it's so hard on the body. And and even in mixed doubles, when you throw and you got to jump up and chase it at times, you know, that's that's hard. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play and we're obviously playing here this week. I'm not going to pack my bags and go home, but I certainly hope that, you know, Carrie or I 
are representing Canada, you know, in the four person games. But if it doesn't happen, you know, we're going to give it a go uh, next year. Beyond that, I don't know uh, what will happen. Uh, I certainly would love to play with my daughter again, which I did last year in, in our provincials, you know, prior to the, to the, you know, COVID coming around. And that was a great experience and something we had a ton of fun. So I'd love to do that again at some point in the future and maybe, you know, get to a national with her and, and let her experience that. Brad, you're talking like you're getting so old that we're going to see in the world stick curling thing one day. Well, I've been practicing with the stick, you know, the, the, the hip's not holding up. I got I to gotta have a plan B here, Jim. <laughs> that a boy. Before we let you go, this must be tough on your dad because uh, when, I, when I met you many years ago, uh, when you were at the Briars and your dad, and I think your uncle, yeah. they never missed a championship of yours and you always talk about what great support they are. This must be hard on your dad not being able to be there, unless he is. I don't know. Didn't- well, no, no, he's not here. It, it is hard. Um, you know, it's hard on on him not watching us. This is the first year where they've missed the big championships, whether it's the Briar or certainly if this was a non-COVID uh, mixed doubles world championship, they'd be here watching me as well. So, Oh, they would have. Uh, oh, absolutely. They would be here watching and uh, enjoying Scottish beer and golf and everything that uh, – Scotland has to offer, but you know, as, as hard as it is for them not to, to be here, it's, it's hard on us as curlers not to have the family support as well. And, and I look back and when we won the mixed doubles, you know, it was wonderful to win, but not having that moment where you can, you know, hug your, your wife and your kids, your, your mom and your dad and, and having that celebration, you know, that was a big aspect that I, I missed. And I've been fortunate enough to, to have that multiple times. And then, you know, when Carrie and I won, you know, obviously I felt great for Carrie, felt great for myself, but you never had that experience to share with the family and friends. So for us as curlers, we're missing that just as much as I imagine our family and supporters are, are missing being here cheering us on. So it's uh, it goes both ways. It, it It's a little lonely when you, you know, you have the bad moments and, and certainly, you know, you miss it when you have those great moments. We saw it in the PGA when, when no crowds were allowed that a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, a lot of lesser-known players played really well, and and they were saying it's because they don't have the pressure. Yeah. Um, is it to your advantage, Brad, uh, with no crowds because you've played so good with big crowds and you you rise to the occasion, or is it an advantage for the lesser-known teams that there's no crowds? I think it hurt us. I think there's some teams that it didn't have any impact. I don't know if there's any teams in particular that it helped, but I I, I do think there were a couple teams, and I and I'd throw Team Jacobs in there as well that you know, really thrive off the crowd and, and kind of that adrenaline that the crowd can provide. But I know we, me personally, I struggled with it at times during the briar and, you know, it got to the point where I was kind of like, they're not coming back, you know, so we, we got to get used to it. And, and really it was the mixed doubles halfway through the mixed doubles. I started to get a little bit more comfortable and, and uh, in the slams, you know, we were, we were used to it at that point. So it was an adjustment for sure. Okay, well, we're all going to make cardboard cutouts. We've seen it in baseball. Okay, we're going to get one of your dad and your uncle. We've got to send it over there. Hey, Brad, before you uh, take off here, uh, I, I did notice today uh, you, you guys look really good energy-wise. I was really concerned um, you might lack of energy just because of all the bubble and all the travel and all the stuff, the quarantine you've had to do. But uh, you know what? You sound great. It, looks like, it sounds like you got lots of energy, and I watched the game today. You guys look fantastic, so good luck going forward and i can't wait to see you and hopefully uh and have a have a pop with you soon 
Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it, Kevin. And, and, you know, we've had we've had some rest and, and the most important thing, I really enjoy playing with Carrie and, and hopefully hopefully she'll say the same thing when she comes on your show. <laughs> we'll uh, have to ask her. But, <laughs> exactly. Please ask her. Um, and uh, if she says yes, then you could air it. If she says no, maybe yeah. maybe cut it out. We'll tell her to keep her opinion to herself. If she <laughs> exactly. <says no. laughs> but we're, we're having fun and, and uh, we've made that really the number one, number one goal is to enjoy ourselves. And I think if we could do that, then, you know, our play will follow and, and the results will follow. So that's kind of the first domino that we're trying to, to knock down. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Love what you're doing uh, for the sport and, and uh, giving some people more knowledge on, you know, what's happened behind the scenes or what is happening behind the scenes. So good work. Keep it up. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Thanks a lot, Brad. Uh, good luck to you. Go get them. Perfect. Thanks. Take care. Well, there we go, boys. Uh, Brad Gushu, uh, certainly with the you know, best curler in the world. Did you ever think, Warren, that uh, we'd get to a day where Brad Gushu is saying, I'm getting old and my hips are sore? <laughs> I mean, he's starting to talk about having to physically watch what he's doing because he's been curling for so long now. Well, I was going to suggest to him, Kevin's got the answer to that, but I thought I'd leave that for a bit. <laughs> Kev, the guy's the real deal, isn't he? Still. Oh, uh, yeah. What a, what a good guy. But you know, when I got my hip replaced, I don't know if you guys know, but the first person to give me a call after it was done, like the next day, once I got to, so I could talk because of all the meds, was Brad Gushu. So, uh, Kevin, uh, how was it? You know, and so I lied. I said, oh, it didn't hurt too much at all. We're all good. <laughs> so, uh, Brad, yeah, he's uh, he's throwing a million rocks, and uh, I think the hips are starting to feel them. Yeah, I think it's going to be the curler's uh, repair job in the years going ahead. It's new hips. <laughs> well, he's traveling with a physiotherapist. They said, oh, my God. Uh, you know, he's not, he can't be that old, but I guess he's getting that old. But he's still very good. Uh, good luck, Brad. Uh, coming up, we're going to be watching all week. We're in a lot of discussion in today's uh, program about changes that are going to ha- happen to curling. Everyone does know it's going to go to eight ends. When do you think we'll start to see changes, Warren? Well, I think changes have been taking place through time. It just is a matter of, I think, people bringing forward some ideas and, and experimenting with them a bit. Uh, and I go back to when we even developed the mixed doubles game. It was putting the thing together and then experimenting with it and getting a number of opinions and somebody saying, yeah, okay, let's do it. And I, I think that's what has to happen. To some degree, maybe the World Curling Federation uh, should be the body that leads the way in some of this stuff. I think, again, the players can lead the way. If they think that things should be different than what they are in, in some of the areas that we've talked about, they are the people that can really uh, force things to be adjusted. Uh, if you'd like to comment on that or any other uh, topics we've spoken about, we'd love to hear from you. Email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. Also, we want to thank a couple of people, um, Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategy. Rod is the guy who's doing a lot of our social media stuff and Facebook page and all, and all the other uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram. Uh, we want to thank all the people at Sportsnet. Warren Hanson, you're now a producer of this, uh, just by the amount of work you're doing every week. Uh, Amal Delic, thank you, Amal. Uh, the, it's mixed and sound designed by Amal as well. Uh, Jonathan Brazo is helping us from Sportsnet with our social media. Uh, we're reaching out to curling clubs all over the world, inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a one-hour Zoom call with uh, me and Kevin and Warren to discuss anything you would like about curling. Keep in mind we're doing this on a limited basis to see how it goes. And if this is something Inside Curling should consider to offer down the road, we would love to keep doing it. So get a hold of us. 
Uh, boys, that's a wrap on another show. We're going to be back next week uh, with all the results from the World Mixed Doubles and a lot more stuff to talk about. Thanks very much, everyone, for joining us. Kevin, take care of yourself. Warren, you have a good week. We'll talk to you later, boys. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.